Welcome to the Scotland's Choice podcast. The journey to our referendum is underway, so join us as we discuss how together we can build a fairer, a more equal and a more prosperous Scotland. Our goal is to ensure that our listeners are informed, that they're encouraged to get involved and will hopefully inspire others to think about the possibilities for Scotland. The past few years have only served to highlight what allowing Westminster to make choices for us is like. So let's make the choices we want for our families and our communities right here in Scotland. I'm your host, Drew Hendry MP. Now let's find out who's joining me on Scotland's Choice today. Hi, my name's Laura Doherty. I'm a current sitting councillor in Glasgow Shettleston and I am standing for re-election this year. Uh, my name is Fergus Much. I'm the former Head of Communications and Research for the SNP at Holyrood. I'm a two-time candidate in previous elections, uh, unsuccessfully I'm afraid to say, and I am in the fortunate position of not having to be a candidate in this election. <laughs> uh, I get to uh, I get to help other people uh, this time around, and I'm delighted to be here on my, my, my first uh, go of Scotland's Choice podcast, of which I've heard. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us, Fergus and Laura. Let, let's start off with a, a question to you, Fergus. You, you've obviously stood for election uh, a few times, um, as you've just said, um, and now you're campaigning to help others to get elected. What initially got you into politics and how did you become part of the independence movement? It's a tough one. I think I'd always been politically aware. We had a sort of small P political family. There'd be interesting debates around the um, the dinner table. My mum's side of the family, farming business background, they were uh, they were maybe more of a, the Tory persuasion, um, whereas my dad's uh, side of the family, a wee bit more uh, in in tune with my politics. So uh, things could get lively at the at the dinner table. Uh, I think the moment I joined up to the the SNP was was when I was at university, at Glasgow University, studying law. Meet a lot of like minded uh, people who share your. Uh, share your ideas, share your vision for for the country, and I suppose at that time, I graduated just in the year that we secured the majority at Holyrood in 2011. Went on to do a masters at UCL when I was down there. Had then first minister um, at LSE giving his pitch on um, the economic vision for independence, what we could become a more prosperous, fair, um, uh, thrusting economy, and I thought. I believe in this. I really believe in this. Uh, I immediately started applying for a few jobs. Um, I'd given up on the, the 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 idea of being a lawyer by this stage. <laughs> but it'd be much more fun to get involved with this work for the S and P, and end up I end up doing that. Um, and and that was that was me hooked and uh, obsessed with Scottish politics ever since. So I think maybe always a latent belief uh, that Scotland could stand on its own two feet, do things for ourselves. Um, that was kind of crystallised when I was at university. And Laura, what was it for you? What what uh, got you into? Uh, um, well, for me, um, I, I didn't have a particularly uh, political family either, but there was always a kind of air of discontentment in the, the union and Scotland's place in it and, and what we really got out of it. Um, I actually went to university in England. Um, it wasn't until I moved back from uni in 2012, just as the independence campaign was really kicking off, um, that I felt this is, this is too big to, to not help out or get involved in any way um, and then like a lot of young people um, when they joined the SNP I got involved with the Young Scots for Independence um, where on a campaigning trip in Lewis I met the convener at the time a young David Linden who also happened to be my local branch organizer 
um, and he got me involved with Shettleston Branch. Um, I studied theatre and visual art at uni, so not not politically uh, minded at all. Not the traditional uh, route, no. No, definitely not. And then um, back in 2013, less than a year after I joined the party, um, I got a, I get a call one night from from that same David Linden to say um, a Labour councillor in my ward had suddenly passed away and that there was going to be a by-election and would I consider putting myself forward as a candidate? Um, I did, and although we didn't win that by-election, it definitely changed the path that I was on. Um, and here I am, almost you know nine years from that by-election, uh, seeking re-election for that ward. And clearly enjoying it since you're putting yourself up for it again. So, Ed, yeah. so before we, we get into the, the kind of core of our questioning today, how's your campaign going, Laura? It's going really well. Um, we're seeing lots of really positive results on the door. We were actually out um, the other week in an area of my ward called Carmyle, which traditionally has been quite a labour um, heavy part of the ward. Um, they've always done really well there and it's taken a long time to see a shift for us. But the results on the door were just, they were quite spectacular. Um, to be honest, we're going back out there tonight. Let that sounds um, encouraging. It was fantastic. Yeah. So. And it's very different kind of territory um, up where you're campaigning for all those Fergus. So what's the feeling uh, where, where you are at the moment? Yeah, I mean, it's as diverse as it can possibly get in, in, in Aberdeenshire. You've got, you know, you've got, um, you know, oil rich um, suburbs around Aberdeen. You've got very, very rural, remote uh, communities such as what I live in in Braemar um, and Strathdon and, and, and Highland Aberdeenshire. You've got the fishing communities of, of Pughead, Fraserburgh. And um, so, yeah, quite quite a diverse kind of range and I suppose a lot of them don't have you know, you know somebody from Peterhead might not think that they've got a, an awful lot in common with somebody from from the mayor's of Stonehaven um that has its own challenges um and I think the the last couple of years have exposed some of those challenges around connectivity how people work how people receive their local services whether it's health education or whatever but you know we, we're not in power in Aberdeenshire and I think a lot of people have realized that the, the way that 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 these have been delivered over the last uh, couple of years has, has probably fallen short. So real opportunity for our council group, which is in opposition, to to kind of expose the, the, the failings of the Tory administration over the last couple of years. And yeah, I'm I'm pretty I'm I'm always a half glass full kind of person. Good. Are you finding that people are more more or less engaged with local elections and say, you know, the Scottish parliamentary elections or the Westminster elections? What what's the uh, level of engagement like? I would say it's less and I, I think that we see that in, in voter turnout as well as it's frustratingly so because you know an awful lot of the, the issues that come up in the door are local issues and I think sometimes that there's um, a disconnect between you know what people believe that their local governments are for and what they're able to do um, so when it comes to you know even talking about really like huge uh, global issues you know like the war in Ukraine and you know Afghan refugees coming uh, being able to come to Scotland um, Glasgow is a refugee dispersal city, but no one would think that that would be an issue to bring up with a local councillor or that local government would be dealing with when it very much is. Indeed. And do you, what are the issues that folk in your community, what do they, they feel most concerned about, Lorna? I mean, right now, what's coming up in the doors for us um, is, is issues like the war in Ukraine, but also the, the rising cost of living um, is huge on the doors, especially fuel prices. Um, that's coming up an awful lot. And then you know, being the local councillor on the door, we do get, you know, the, the roads cleansing, but also pandemic recovery um, is a huge, huge issue for people and things that they want to engage in. And, and Fergus, we heard about the kind of energy costs there. You were saying you're in this place where there's a lot of uh, 
uh, traditional energy generation and production. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been taking a bill through uh, Parliament, which uh, is, is talking about those people who are living off gas grid, you know, who are paying four times more in terms of for the heating than uh, others. And you find that these are the same kind me. of... <laughs> you, <laughs> uh, you know, we, you know that, that's where I've been born. Actually, it's huge swathes of Aberdeenshire. Uh, you know, the, the, the gas line comes in from the North Sea at St. Fergus, and then it, you know, it, it goes through Aberdeenshire. But, but actually, you know, places like, like the community I live in, they've never been connected to gas. So you, you, you get expensive oil delivered in bulk to the area, um, and you pay thousands of pounds for a tank load. Um, and yeah, the cost of that has, as you say, multiplied, uh, several fold. And, and that, that's tough because, because actually these are the communities that were already struggling with fuel poverty before we've faced you know the the, the price rises that have, that have come in um just this week that cost of living crisis is going to be acutely felt in so many communities across Scotland. but there's a real rural element to, to, to that too which i'm sure you recognize from your own your own uh, caseload as well um drew and, and and i think there is that kind of absurdity it's obscenity really um that the northeast of scotland has been the energy driving region for the entirety of the UK and in global terms as well. You know, we export our expertise and our skills and, you know, the things that we manufacture for the, the global energy industry. Um, at the same time, people here are paying through the nose um, and it's as unaffordable to, to, to people in this region as, as, as anywhere. And it's, it's not just oil and gas. I mean, people can look out their windows and see the renewables generation that's going on. Uh, you know, in, in Aberdeenshire and uh, and the, re the rest of the north of Scotland as well, which is exporting this. And yet, you know, as we've said in the previous podcast, we're paying more even just to be, even just to connect those wind farms and everything else to the grid. We have to pay through the nose for that. And then yeah. people are charged a higher unit for their electricity if they live in the north of Scotland. Yeah, and I mean, it, it demonstrates the whole imbalance in the system. And it, it's a system designed to to suit the needs of the South England. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's that's the problem with with withholding you know, part of the control um, over over the industry, but not the infrastructure and not, and not, not so much of the jigsaw. I mean, mm -hmm. just can't sign a system that works, makes things affordable and delivers uh, the outcomes that, yeah. that we desperately need at a time like this. And the other problem is you can't respond quickly to a crisis like this when you don't control the levers. And, and Laura, you were talking about, you know, the, the cost of living crisis being, you know, part of the, the concerns. Of course, people don't often realise you know, the council often have to, you know, to, to an extent, pick up some of the pieces that have to fund different groups and help different groups to support people. And it's quite a big issue in terms of, you know, uh, and, and the decisions that are made in the council, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, in our, um, we just passed uh, our council budget, our last budget of the term. Um, and in that budget, we in Glasgow are having to invest, I think it's around £3 million to try and mitigate the cost of living um, for people in the city, you know, and it's, it's like Fergus was saying, you don't control the levers. You know, we have not just a national government in Scotland, but local governments having to mitigate the, the decisions that are made um, by governments in London. Well, you, you're just talking about that mitigation that, that your council is having to make. But of course, that's on top of the things that we, you know, we have to do in Scotland, such as the, you know, mitigating the entirety of the bedroom tax, you know, bringing in the Scottish child payment and... Uh, and a range of other benefits that, uh, that we've had to bring in, even though, though we only have 15% of the, uh, the the benefits powers in Scotland. 
bringing these in just to, to kind of mitigate the, the, the cuts that have been made elsewhere. And of course, that, that, that crisis that's going on just now. And, and, and from a, and, and I suppose from a commentator's point of view and observer's point of view, um, you know, yes, absolutely. You know, and people conflate the two wrongly. We should be mitigating them. Yes, we should be, because that's the responsible and right thing to do. Absolutely. But, you know, when you're working within a fixed envelope of a budget, that money has to come from somewhere. And, uh, Indeed. And when you can't, when you can't generate the, uh, the funds in order to pay for these things, when you're working in that fixed budget, it means that you lose out elsewhere. And of course, council, council quite rightly are held to account for the state of the roads and, uh, you know, for other facilities and so forth as well. And all these choices that are made in terms of mitigations are taking money away from you. Let, let this move to, um, the situation. Um, that we're in at, at the moment. Do you think as we navigate the pandemic, do you think the pandemic has changed people's views on uh, local services? I mean, I think it's changed the way that people want to be able to access their services. Um, and Fergus touched on this a bit earlier. It has certainly had an impact on how fast um, we have moved to being far more digitally um, inclined with our services and those people who want to use our services that way. But of course, um, with the the speed that that's came in, we, we need to be recognising that people aren't left behind. And certainly in my community and in areas in the East End, and I'm sure um, it'll apply across the country in, in rural locations as well, that digital exclusion is a, a huge problem, you know, and the support that's needed to either improve um, digital literacy or even access to digital infrastructure will vary across communities. Um, and that'll look different even in Glasgow. You know, what works in Shettleston may well not work in, in somewhere like Castlemilk. I think that um, that notion that we we had to, you know, build back better um to to, to borrow somebody else's uh, phrase but you know that the idea of getting the recovery right was on people's lips from as early as april 2020 may 2020 just weeks into the pandemic i suppose what's maybe disappointing um, and this is probably fair criticism of government at, at every level is matching that ambition with strategies that could be put into place at, at, at this stage when we're two years on and actually, we all want to get back to, you know, normality or whatever the new normal is. Um, and, and why are those, you know, some, some, some are probably coming on the stream now, but actually there's not a lot of time to lose in, in ensuring that we make the best out of it. And, and something like you know, addressing broadband speeds in, 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 in rural locations, the costs involved in some of these solutions you know, in rural Aberdeenshire, where I am, you, you're talking about 15 homes and they've been quoted five million pounds to connect them to, to to something that 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 governments are are trying to make available to all now that's prohibitive for them but at the same time we're also saying to these communities you need to access your services online your kids need to to, to go to school online you need to access local healthcare solutions online to save you the round trip and you know it's just actually sort of rural proofing some of these um, uh, these these policy ambitions, which are all well and good, but you know, another case in point would be twenty minutes neighbourhoods that we're talking about for mm -hmm. for people to get their goods and services in the local area. That's fantastic. That's will reduce our um you know, our our carbon emissions. It'll breed some vitality into local areas. But Aberdeenshire and Aberdeen City, you know, people people drive from Banff to do their shopping in Aberdeen. You can't just wish that away at the at the flick of a switch that will take time to address habits to build up infrastructure yeah. to restore local high streets to to do all of these things so so it's the ambition is great and these last two years have really got us thinking again about how we do all of this but the delivery will be everything 
And of course, as we're um, talking here just now, like people will be getting the the, the 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 reality that being a councillor isn't just potholes and planning committees. You know, this is a, you know a very wide ranging job. In the uh, we've done other uh, local election specials, and I spoke in, in one with uh, Emma Olaf and Lloyd on the challenges around getting people to stand uh, for local election. And, and, and as we uh, we mentioned there, you you probably know that there are. 18 councillors that are already elected in Scotland without any contest. I'm, I'm interested to hear um, your thoughts and why so few people want to put themselves forward um, to, to stand as, as councillors. I mean, I suppose it's a mix of things. Um, obviously, the pay is, is an issue. The pay for, for the workload and the hours that you have to do, um, it's treated in a pay scale as being a part-time job. Um, it is not, <laughs> or not, it's not to do it well. Um, and actually, we just had our, our last full council of the term and we had a motion on specifically on why it is so difficult to get women to stand for council and also to to maintain women in council. You know, the vast majority, I think, of the councillors that are standing down after only one term, um, certainly in my council, are women. There is a whole host of reasons as to why that's the case, the, the pay, the hours, um, also the, the need for us to also have an online presence. And all the the issues that come with that is an issue. There's also, I suppose, limited resources that we have sometimes to do do the job that you know parliamentarians certainly don't have. You know, parliamentarians will have a team around them to be able to do so much more. Whereas we are just ourselves. You know, you might have a support officer that will help with the sort of um, admin of of your your job. But other than that, it's it's you. You know, you are your own caseworker. You're your you know policy assistant you are you're everything for yourself um and that coupled with the pay and and all the flack that you can get that's right does that, put people off that, that's right when i was elected as a councillor way but fair enough way back in 2007 you were given basically some business cards and a, a blackberry as it was then mobile phone and and that was it I did, you, there was no other kit or like that but um you know and a lot of, i've said this before you know a lot of people just don't understand you know the uh the the duties of a, a councillor how much work goes into it and, uh, you know, that if you're doing it properly, we know that some people don't do it properly, but I think the vast majority of councillors either try to do it well or do it really, really well and don't really recognise the, the rewards for it. Have you got any thoughts on that, Fergus? Yeah, much, much to say with Laura, I think just the base level salary isn't, isn't competitive, to be honest. I, I, I tried um, desperately to get some, some younger people in the local area um, to stand in the most recent election. And put it this way, uh, a young apprentice in a, in a business who's tapped in, is an active member of the community, knows everybody, participates in the community council, has been an SP member for years, ticks absolutely every box. And when I mentioned it to him, he said, well, if I, if I wanted to half my pay <laughs> and, uh, and deal with all the grief that comes with it. And he said, you look, you could, you could you know, be a retail supervisor and earn considerably more than you would in a councillor's role. And that comes with far less of the hassle than as Laura says, you know, put yourself in front for other people. You know, they expect a lot of you. And and we should expect a lot of our elected representatives, but it's simply just not an appealing prospect unless in many cases you're you know independently wealthy or you're retired or you know and somebody like Laura who's just committed and it's mm -hmm. the committed, passionate people you want to 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 attract into to local politics. But it's not necessarily them 
um, the 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 call. And and the problem there is if you want good people, yep. decent remuneration that reflects the job that they do mm-hmm. is number one. I think if you also want people who reflect the community that you live in, you know, it, it, there's huge yeah. barriers for people from you know LGBT backgrounds, from BME backgrounds, who would really struggle to on the pay and the the conditions to access. You know, it is like you say. I mean, for a long time, councils were, you know, filled with predominantly wealthy white men who you know were able to either take the pay cut or have a pension on the side that you know they were able to do the job. Which, which is why you find, you know, that uh, often the youngest uh, members in a council are somewhere around between 40 to 50 years old because, the, you know, <laughs> other younger people have been able to get into that. Let's talk about the uh, about communities. Over the past few years, participatory uh, budgeting has become more commonplace. I, I'm interested to hear both your thoughts on whether this is a model that you believe in and believe it works. And uh, can we uh, build on any successes or lessons that we've uh, learned from our own communities? I think it's I think it's hugely important and definitely the the way forward. I think it's it, I think it's certainly a way to 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 reengage and reinvigorate community councils um, because uh, you know they are often seen as as talking shops which have little clout, but actually they have a real fundamental building block of our democracy role to play in saying, you know, how, how, how is money spent? You know, why, why don't, for example, community councils have a role in saying how local schools are run? You know, other, other you know, Scandinavian models of government, uh, they, they, they certainly do. Um, and, that's, and that's no bad thing, get the decisions being made closer, closer to home. And, and I think once you get people involved in that, it's a really good thing. And, it, and it's not necessarily just public sector budgets either. Um, so we were talking about renewable energy a moment ago. You know, when you've got community wind turbines, community hydro schemes, uh, like they've got uh, in, in, in my local area, you know, when, as soon as you get people coming up with the solutions themselves for how to build a, a better community, um, then the fact that there's a wind turbine on the hillside doesn't really bother them anymore because everyone reaps the benefits. So empowering people, giving them serious power over decent chunks of money i'm not talking about you know 200 quid for you know for 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 some new traffic cones for a, some some safety scheme i'm talking about real money to reinvigorate their local park to the tune of a hundred thousand pounds you know that sort of money and um, that can make a real real difference to people getting outdoors to young people leading active lifestyles and um, you know for the rest of their days that's the stuff that really really makes a difference so i mean in glasgow um as part of the sort of glasgow community planning partnership each of our wards each 23 wards um in our council have what's called an area partnership now that body um as well as having lots of other responsibilities has a budget and councillors sit on that as well as members from community councils members from um you know public and uh, voluntary sectors also sit on that and they are able to basically dish out um, and allocate money to various groups and organizations that are in that ward that provide various services um, that think that people need you know uh, we funded groups like ships and growing project uh, fuse youth cafe funded charities like say women um, as part of the area partnership now this was only introduced last year but we have allocated in Glasgow 1.5 million of our budget last year and again this year to what's called the Parks and Open Spaces Fund. Um, and that is divided up amongst the area partnerships as well. So local members, um, as Fergus have saying, community council, uh, members of the community can come along and say where they want 
things in their in their ward. Like for example, we agreed last year to look at widening some of the access points to various parks um, within the ward. I know other wards in the council have had money allocated to sort of semi derelict spaces to create a place for people to be able to to spend time and to improve the area, um, and that all works really really well in Glasgow. On the community council front, I think that. There's, there's things that need to be improved within community councils as well, because community councils have a similar problem to, you know, people seeking election, is that the demographic of community councils doesn't always reflect the communities that they are in. And it's how do you make community councils also accessible to, you know, not just retired people or people who have the time, but also um, people from across the community and across the dis different um, demographics of that community to, yeah. to see... Yeah. yeah, that's a really good point because normally the communities thrive when democracy is closer uh, to people. And at the moment, the Scottish Government's Democracy Matters Local Governance Review is looking at ways to strengthen uh, both communities and uh, local democracy. So I'm interested in your thoughts on how we can uh, best move forward and and to, to encourage and develop local governments to be, governance to be much more inclusive of uh, those kinds of community groups. What are your thoughts on that? I guess it is also looking at what's already there, um, like the community council network and how best we can utilise community councils. Also in Glasgow, we have the Open Government Action Plan um, that was approved um, a few CACs ago that looked at things like participatory democracy, things like citizens panels. Um, they were looking at exploring a open digital engagement platform. Um, and it's looking at the different ways that people want to engage and whether that is something like a citizens panel where there's you know an issue that people want to talk about and actually want to have a bit more of a say on um, as far as policy making you can have something like that you could have something um like a, a digital platform for people and that being fed back to community councils or community councils and different organizations being able to play a role in them is examples of things that we're working on or are looking to explore working on yeah i think that those are both great um you know, that's 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 kind of what people really respond to, I think, uh, Laura, and that, that kind of citizens panel, you know, what used to be called town halls, I suppose, you know, what's the problem we've got? You know, we don't necessarily have the solution to it. Over to you guys. And there's, there's no, there's no better way to stimulate and actually get great ideas out of people because more often than not, it wouldn't be the council official or the councillor necessarily who've thought around the issue 20 times that knows you know, exactly how it should be dealt with. Well, the, the, the person who's living on the doorstep. Yeah, that, that's a good point because one of the, the great um, community projects that's happening in the, the Highlands at the moment is a, is a project called Edible Growing. So that's, that's basically community volunteer groups and working with ward councillors and council staff to identify areas where they can grow things like herbs and fruits and and other food it takes loads and loads of you know boxes boxes yeah right. are, can you can you come up with any specific examples of the community working successfully with the council on on your patch are there are there other things like that you can you can give us examples of i mean i mentioned it just briefly their shelton growing project which is a very similar project yeah. so i guess what's going on but fundamentally with uh, a Grown project they're, they're a community allotment but there is more than just about food growing you know they have um a young kids club um, called the Smelly Welly Club and it, they, that runs I think from Easter to Halloween um, and it's bringing kids in, kids from you know an area of the city where the vast majority of people live in flats and especially up tenements um, into you know the natural environment 
um, to explore not just food growing, but biodiversity, um, the climate crisis, and also with some of the other guys that are using the, the as an allotment, de definitely during the pandemic when you know a lot of people in Glasgow were confined to flats um, and we didn't have uh, an abundance of outdoor access. It, it was a project that really went some way um, to ease the sort of social isolation that an awful lot of people were having to deal with. Um, and just to get people outdoors, seeing each other and, you know, also with the, the, the young the young kids as well, that sort of intergenerational relationship that sometimes can be missing um, in a lot of communities. You, you're talking there, Laura, about, you know, kind of what you you know you can do to help people to, to kind of get out and reconnect and mm -hmm. do all those things. And earlier on, we were talking about the cost of living uh, crisis and the, the real challenges. I mean, <laughs> challenges, too soft a word, you know, the, the absolute crisis that, uh, and it is a crisis that people are going to have to, to somehow uh, navigate. And and I'm interested, you know, following on what we were saying just now about, you know, the, those things that, you know, post-pandemic, that uh, if it is post-pandemic, that are, that are happening. How do you think councils can best help uh, constituents through these these really difficult times? I mean, I think it will, It'll obviously be community dependent. You know, like I say, in Glasgow, we've had to, you know, add a three million into our budget to help address these. Now that'll help, you know, with things like fuel poverty, um, help with one parent families, um, and assist other people struggling with the cost of living. But ultimately, I think you you need to be able to engage with your community to know how best people want to be helped. You know, as I said earlier, what will work in Shettleston won't necessarily work in somewhere like Castle Milk or Cardonald, and it it will. I imagine be wildly different than what people will need in Banff um, and it's having local councillors and it's and again I mean I might touch on this later why these local elections are so important is that you need to have effective elected representation on the ground in your communities that are interested in not just leading but helping communities to be able to lead themselves. And Fergus, Laura was talking there about you know a community group that was also looking at the issues around climate change and so forth. Just to, to probably push this a wee bit uh, further, what, what opportunities do you see within your local authority area to tackle the twin problems of both the energy crisis and meet the demands of climate change? Yeah, well, there's there's a brilliant example actually um, in the Tarland town of Cromar area of uh, West Aberdeenshire. It's a very community-minded um, group of, of of local people who you know have done everything from you know, um, you know community horticultural schemes, uh, replanting trees, creating floodplain floodland to to control um, you know the more regular flooding uh, that, that we're we're already seeing in these communities uh, because of climate change. They're doing a fair share um, scheme, um, which is a kind of you know, well, it's it's essentially um, food banks without the stigma that, that that often comes with with food banks because you know you you think Aberdeenshire, you think people are well off, but no, they have there's really really acute challenges in 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 certain communities, and you know all of this in tandem works one to create a, a stronger sense of community, two to address some of the real climate change challenges that people are seeing right on their doorsteps. To be honest. And uh, and three, yes, that 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 problem with local poverty, where it's driven by fuel, employment, uh, whatever, um, you know, having a ready-made uh, kind of partnership locally. One of the things I would say um, that that uh, there's perhaps a role for for local government in assisting with is access to land and access to to property. 
um, there's there's plenty of land to go around in somewhere like Aberdeenshire to do you know community gardening gardening schemes uh, to do grow your own uh, allotments sort yeah, of release uh, that land to, to more people so well, I can get more done yeah well well well, ab- well absolutely um, and and there's plenty of our land in Aberdeenshire that is held by a small number of landowners uh, some uh, exercise uh, the use of the land very well very responsibly but there are some other fairly notorious examples who who do not it's uh, intensive sporting use and sporting use only with little community benefit little environmental benefit um and and little commercial ben- benefit too um to to be quite fair they're just it's just land bank- banking and and in huge swathes of the north of scotland particularly uh, and the south of scotland um, for that matter um too much land is held by too few um to uh, and serves a very, very little purpose. Indeed. It, we, we spoke earlier about, you know, the fact that the Scottish government has to use its budget as the council's to, to mitigate the impacts of dr- draconian Westminster policies that we see coming through. Why do you believe that this would change with independence, Laura? Well, I mean, I think fundamentally it would change because the government that is implementing these policies isn't one with Scotland's interests at its heart. It's not one that we even voted for. And I think naturally with independence, you know, the Scottish electorate, I mean, I suppose as they do now with the Scottish government, get the government that they choose that has their interest and, and the policies that they wanted to see is where they will go to the ballot. Right now, that's that's not an option when we're, at, we're in this union. Probably three quick points on that. You know, there, with independence, we have greater accountability, closer accountability to the governments we, we elect. Um, there's also the... You know, whether it's SNP or otherwise, there's more likelihood of returning a uh, centre-left, left, left-wing uh, left government, which, you know, the, the the punitive, cruel policies that we've seen from, from Westminster over the last decade plus, um, you know, wouldn't be tolerable in that environment, I I, I, I don't suggest. Well, Scotland but hasn't voted for the Tories to, since the 1950s. But maybe to play devil's advocate uh, on, on, on one point, you know, what what's imperative on us is to ensure that we're setting out that vision and also to make sure that the economic fundamentals of, of that perspective that we put to people is strong enough that we can afford all of these things. Um, uh, and we should be able to, and we should be able to by diversifying our economy, but don't take that as a given. That is a, that is a bit of the jigsaw that we need to work upon. Okay, well, we've had a great chat. We're coming towards the end of our um our conversation just now. This episode launches uh, uh, just a, a short while before the election. What is your pitch on why it is important uh, for people to vote in this election? I, mean, I mentioned this earlier, but so your local government is at the very core of the services that impact your daily lives. And, you know, and that's from schools to regeneration, um, cleansing roads, but also we are impacted and we have to to make decisions on global events and situations. Again, I mentioned that Glasgow being the dispersal city for refugees. It is so important for people to have the elected representatives that reflect their wants and aspirations, um, not just from themselves and their families, but for their wider communities as well. I think all the uh, SNP candidates that I know that are standing in this election um, are real champions of their own communities. Uh, and for them, this is a, a, a crucial election about delivery of quality local services and uh you know how we get that crucial recovery from the pandemic right 
to allow our communities to prosper. Okay, well, a couple of quick fire, a few quick fire questions to, to end off for us. If you could implement one policy or change a current policy the way we can't do at the moment under Westminster through an independence call, what would it be? Immigration is the big one. You know, I mean, I've, I've also worked for, for parliamentarians and having to, Westminster parliamentarians, um, and your dealings with the Home Office are just shocking. Like the, the is, I mean, it's not an understatement to say that it's just cruel. You know, the current policies that are in place are just cruel. And we've seen it over the last year, especially um, with uh, Afghan refugees and now with the war in Ukraine. Um, there is no no compassion or humanity in, in that department or with the current policies. And that's something that I, I think the vast majority of people in Scotland would love to see change. You know, we, we would love to be able to, you know, waive the visas ourselves uh, for Ukrainian refugees. Um, so that, that that would be, you know, sort of the, the top area that, that the I, I would love to see change. Yeah. And for you, Fergus? Yeah, let's get the economics right, um, grow our economy, um, and, and do that in a way that shares the wealth around, leaves nobody behind. Okay, many independent supporters want to help campaign, but they might be worried that they won't be able to answer questions about independence on the doors when they're out there. What advice would you give to them? Hey, don't worry. Uh, so what we do, uh, <laughs> certainly when we go out campaigning, um, if you're new, you're always paired up with an experienced activist and you can stay paired up for as, for as many campaign sessions as you like. Um, I wouldn't say that we get an abundance of really tricky, difficult to answer questions, um, but you'll definitely be paired up with someone. Um, and if not, just, just ask. And I'm sure your, your local organiser will get that sorted for you. Um, and we'll show you the ropes and you'll have a great time. You've been out in the doors a few times, Fergus. What's your thoughts? I think tell your own story. You know, people can hear from Nicholas Sturgeon. They can hear from Drew Henry. They can hear from uh, all the bigwigs in the party if they turn on the TV and they hear what they got to say. Hey, tell your own story. To me in with. <laughs> There's nothing more compelling than that face-to-face -face conversation um, about each individual person's journey to, to yes. You don't have to have all the answers. That's what the politicians are there for. If you're a foot soldier, tell your own story. And so, Fergus and then Laura, what's your pitch to folk who are still undecided on Scottish independence? It makes sense to take decisions for yourselves. Don't let other people decide for you. You know, right now, it's as if we're living in a, in a tale of two nations. Um, and the disparity of the wants, needs and aspirations only has seemed to grown as the months and years have rolled on since since 2014 and certainly before. Um, and when the opportunity comes again to, to make that change, grab it. That's, I think that's a great place for us to uh, end this episode of Scotland's Choice. Can I thank both Laura and Fergus for joining us uh, today on the Scotland Choice podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Drew. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to Scotland's Choice. You can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot and you can watch the full-length videos on YouTube. If you can share this podcast and our videos, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. I'm Drew Hendry, and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice. Mm -hmm.